This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit. Mike, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. We are talking today about the DIU's annual report to Congress. It kind of highlights all the efforts you've done and, and all the success you've had from 2021 and, and how they compare to previous years. DIU is a SECDEF initiative that started in 2016 as a way to uh, really illuminate a path to the defense marketplace for non-traditional companies, lower those barriers to entry that were impeding uh, some of those high-tech companies from doing business with uh, DOD, and we have, we have moved forward from there. We prototype technology, but we also prototype methodologies uh, to find the best technology to bring to DOD, but also the best ways to bring that technology to DOD. And we put out a report, uh, an annual report the last several years, as you mentioned, and we're particularly excited. Uh, I'm still very bullish on DIU. Particularly excited about this year. We've delivered eight commercial solutions, uh, bringing our cumulative total to 35 since 2016 when we uh, started. We have awarded 279 contracts and we brought in about 240 non traditional vendors. So these are vendors who historically evaluated the defense marketplace and said, no thanks, uh, it takes too long, it's too difficult, it's too complex. And we were able to work with them and bring them in. Uh, but especially exciting for us is that we've published in the last year, we published 26 solicitations for commercial solutions. So what that tells me is that we have proven our value to our DOD partners as a way to rapidly bring in that commercial technology to bear on DOD problems and provided our return on investment to them. But also we have received a total of over 1,100 company proposals, uh, which is a 10% increase from last year, and an average of about 43 proposals per solicitation. So what that tells me also is not only have we proven value to our DOD partner, but we're proving value to our commercial partners as well uh, as a way to simplify that process of working with the department. So we're, we're very excited about that. All right, a couple of things to maybe uh, put a finer point on. The 240 non-traditional vendors, let's talk about that measure because we hear a lot about non-traditionals when it comes to OTAs. And then when you start digging into those OTAs and, and, and specifically you go, oh, well, that's make up the, the company. Lockheed Martin won that one. Oh, Accenture won that one. Oh, Booz Allen won that one. And those are obviously traditional contractors. So how are you how are you ensuring that these are truly folks who have not done business? I think it's in the last year or something to that effect. I think there's a specific definition. Look, modernization of the department is going to take all players, whether it's traditional vendors, non-traditional vendors, small business, systems integrators. And we want to work with all those folks that want to help us modernize the department. Our authority to operate uh, from Congress specifically cites non-traditional vendors, but it also provides provisions uh, to work with uh, traditional vendors. As we look across those number of companies that we work with, work with an overwhelming majority, 75% are small businesses. And then I believe we have uh, 30, uh, yeah, about a third are folks that have never done business with DOD at all. Uh, And then we have another majority that are in fact the non-traditional companies. So yeah, while we do target and work with the non-traditionals largely, uh, we do have provisions to work with uh, all players in the defense ecosystem. I think generally speaking, you have to, right? There's no one going to say you can't work with these big companies. I, I guess my, my, I just wanted to put put some clarification around when you use the term non-traditional for some people, maybe very specific meaning like, oh, well, company X that's never done 
DOD work or any federal work before is non-traditional, but company Y that did work for DOD in, in 2013, but hasn't done one, doesn't really done much since then, but they have a GSA contract or something. Are they non-traditional? So I was just want to put a finer point on it so folks understand how you guys look at it because 240 or, or the number sounds great, but sometimes people go, they it's a, maybe start scratching their head. We use the FAR definition for non-traditional company. But as I mentioned, we also pull in companies that have never done business at all with DOD. And then uh, again, about 75% are small business companies, which uh, we find are oftentimes where the innovation is taking place. And I think that number is is important because so much of this is being done on that bleeding edge, cutting edge by the small business. The other numbers I just want to touch upon too is the eight commercial solutions delivered, 35 since 2016. Give me a sense of what some of those eight were in, in 2021 and, and how did it impact DoD mission? Yeah, so of those eight, we had three in our cyber portfolio, one in our artificial intelligence portfolio, three in responsive launch in our space portfolio, and one in our autonomy portfolio for counter UAS. Um, and that's, you know, DIU is structured around six tech focus areas. So We've uh, transitioned in four of those uh, areas. Uh, one thing to uh, to note is we did shift our, our annual report. We did shift to a uh, fiscal year instead of a calendar year. But also what we have noticed is the magnitude of the contracts has increased. So while the number may have decreased just slightly, what we have noticed is the the magnitude and the strategic importance of these transitions has increased significantly. And even looking, uh, you know, if we get a quick vector check mid, we're not even quite to mid to FY22 yet. And we've already seen about $1.5 billion in contract ceiling awarded already. Uh, so again, we're on pace to have a higher magnitude of contract value uh, in FY22. Do you get a sense of why the the dollar figures are going up? Is it bigger projects? Is it more money to be spent? <laughs> yeah, so I think it's uh, the strategic importance um, and the size of these and the ability to scale across the department. And in fact, that's one of our go-dos as we've developed. We were able to very early on show that we could rapidly prototype technology and bring it into the department. But then what we did is we stopped looking for the one-offs and we started looking for the the projects and the problems that would scale across the department or platforms to truly transform the capability and capacity of the department. So I think this increased value is a manifestation of seeing some of the work of our defense engagement team that's charged with the the business development or the sales portion of it, uh, the success that they're having with scaling across the department. And again, also the strategic importance of some of these projects now. Uh, you know, we're talking about installation counter UAS, uh, you know, just even thinking about that on the surface, thinking about all the military installations across the world and bringing this capability to bear uh, and the strategic importance uh, of that. And that's just kind of an indication of, of what we're seeing as we further developed. That ability to scale across the DOD, I'm seeing that a lot with a lot of projects in, in very similar organizations outside of obviously D, DIU. I think DHS and their procurement innovation lab, not the same thing as DIU at all, but but that same concept, uh, obviously DHS, S&T, and some other things, is that also causes you all to get more solicitations because folks are saying, my problem is similar to that person's problem. And as I talk to my colleagues, we're kind of coming together as what a potential solution that would benefit all of us. Is that another reason why maybe some of the, there's more solicitations are coming in or more requests, at least for your, for your help? 
That's a great point. And, and I'll take it a little bit further. I think it's not only the point that you tease out, but I think it's also showing the comfort that the department is gaining with using OTs. You know, you look back 10 years ago or even less, and there was uh, some apprehension about uh, understanding how to use OTs, where the best case to use other transaction authority would be. And of course, that's an authority that has been granted to the government since the 50s. And we've only really gotten back to that as a authorized way to procure goods for uh, the department. So I think that it's an increasing comfort with uh, the department using those. But then it's also, I think, the recognition that DIU does lower those barriers to entry, that we do recognize uh, the complexity of the process and we try to simplify that, that we recognize the time and dollars uh, that vendors commit when they do submit uh, proposals. And so we we recognize that and we try to minimize the time for that. In fact, we look to award a prototype contract in 60 to 90 days. Right now we're running about 100 days on that, but that's still light years ahead of traditional contracting. And companies see that and recognize the value that they're going to get either a, a fast yes or no. Um, and then if the answer is no, then they can move on. And if it's yes, they continue uh, in the process. Right. In fact, uh, we just actually t- talked about a story recently about the uh, Space Command issuing some OTAs for low orbit satellites. And one of the questions that came up is, is this going to be protested because it was like $1.2 or $1.8 billion, a huge amount. And the answer is no, it's an OTA. And <laughs> in, in, in generally speaking, OTAs are not protestable, which, again, it's a, a, a benefit, but also sometimes uh, folks get frustrated in that sense, which it's, it's actually a good segue to the industry discussion a little bit, too, because you mentioned about 1,100 company proposals for the solicitations you guys put out there, about a 10% increase, 43 proposals per solicitation. Walk me through those numbers a little bit. That's surprising. 43 is a lot. So walk me through what you're seeing from industry, too. We increase transparency for the commercial partner, we increase competition for our DOD partner, lower the time to uh, that the vendor has to dedicate to this and obligate to that. And so we're able to get more solicitations in, which is great because what we're able to do then is cast a pretty wide net. We're able to use our commercial engagement team to go out into the ecosystem and really understand where is that, that large magnitude of commercial investment taking place in the tech ecosystem? Who are the companies that are really on the leading edge and doing really some of the, uh, the fantastic innovation and development in that areas that we think are going to help some, solve some of DOD's problems? So using OTs, we increase the transparency, increase the competition, uh, so it's all very, very clear. And we're also not a consortium, so there's no limit to the number of folks that can uh, participate uh, in our activities. Uh, which again is great for not only the men and women in uniform, because we're getting that leading edge technology in the hands of our men and women in uniform, but also for the taxpayer, because we're able to leverage that huge magnitude of research and development taking place in the commercial sector uh, and increase the value of those dollars spent then in the prototyping process. In fact, the commercial sector outspends government by about $250 billion per year in R&D. So if we can leverage that, that sunk cost already, and then take that commercially proven out product and with minor customization and proven through prototyping to solve DOD problems, uh, it's fantastic for uh, the taxpayer. It's fantastic for our uh, uh, servicemen and women. I know looking at some of the recent reports about the state of the defense industrial base, there's been a push from a lot of the associations for more investment <clears throat> in R&D and, and kind of relook at the priorities. So I think it's, it's actually really good news to hear that not only are private sector companies investing, but then you all through DIU are taking advantage of, of that investment. I think that's uh, probably not something that's well known 
across the community. Mike, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit in DOD. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit inside the Department of Defense. The other piece of this when we talk about industry is you guys aren't asking for 100-page proposals. You're not asking for you know, stuff that's going to take six months to fill out and understand. It's usually some sort of 10 pages or less white paper. Walk me through what the average kind of response is from someone in industry. Let's back up and uh, talk about what we ask them for. So we don't come to uh, the commercial sector with an onerous 500-page requirements document. Instead, what we come to our commercial partners with is a very simply stated problem statement on what problem we're trying to solve rooted in the requirements of the services when we work with our DOD partners. And we're looking for half a page or a paragraph. And we spend a good amount of time curating that problem with our DOD partners. When we go through that curation process, we remove the acronyms, uh, we take away the Pentagon jargon, and really put it in terms that the commercial sector understands, which is no small feat sometimes, as you can imagine. And so then when we put that out on our website for two weeks, we work everything through the selection process in close concert with our DOD partner. And from our commercial partners, what we're looking for is a 15-page slide deck or a five-page white paper. Again, something very simple that states how they will solve the problem uh, that we have brought to them. And then working with our DOD partner, you know, we, we got an average of 46, as we mentioned, per solicitation. We work through those and call it down to a number to invite in for in-person pitches, again, with our DOD partner, uh, before we then award a prototype contract and then start working through the prototyping phase before we field that technology. And again, we talked about the timeline for awarding a prototype contract. But we also look to field that technology in one to two years, uh, whether it's software or hardware. So software tends to be a little bit faster in the prototyping and fielding. Hardware tends to be a little bit longer, uh, but still get it out into uh, into the field in a very short amount of time. And to be clear, that fielding that technology, that is that prototype or, or that's the production side of it? That is the production side of it. And our authority to operate from Congress also allows us to transition from a uh, prototype contract right to a production contract without recompeting, provided the prototype contract was awarded under competitive means, which is what our process satisfies. Yeah, we want to be clear on that because a lot of people hear, well, one to two years, but but you're talking about actually getting folks to use it in the field versus that idea of, well, we're testing it to make sure it works. Right. Uh, the other side of this is how's the pandemic, which is I know we're all kind of tired of talking about it, but has that hurt your timelines? Has that improved your timelines? Has that not really had an effect on your timelines? That really has not had much of an effect on our timelines at all. DIU ourselves, we even leverage commercial technology. So in March of 2020, when we stopped working in the office and everybody started working remote, for us, uh, we went home one day and we fired everything up, all of our commercial technology up the next day. And it was an absolute seamless transition for us moving to, to that environment. But the pandemic has offered us opportunities, again, to solve DOD problems. I'll use an example that we call RATE. It's Rapid uh, Assessment of the Threat Environment. And it was a prototype used to predict when men and women in uniform were going to come down with an infectious uh, disease. Think flu. Uh, This is pre-pandemic. So those kind of things that would impact readiness and could spread potentially through an organization. Well, we were almost complete with that prototype when the COVID pandemic started. 
And instead of going back through a requirements process, we just pivoted and applied it to COVID environment and ran the prototype with COVID environment. And we had about, uh, gosh, 10,000 participants, I believe, and it was using wearable technology in the form of uh, aura rings and uh, watches uh, to detect biometric measurements, uh, various measurements into a database and using artificial intelligence to predict when folks were going to get sick. And in fact, we were able to uh, perfect it to the point where we were able to identify folks who were going to get sick with COVID 48 hours before testing or symptoms indicated that they actually had COVID. So if you think about that from a unit perspective, you know, if I'm a commander, now I have awareness of someone who is potentially going to bring that into the larger unit. We can pull them out, isolate them before they're even, uh, even infectious. So a couple, I know that was a long answer to your question, but uh, from our uh, DIU's operations perspective, it was relatively seamless, uh, but there were opportunities to help, again, help leverage commercial technology to solve DOD problems. That's actually a great example you provided around the wearable technologies to help predict uh, uh, folks uh, potentially getting sick. Is that something that moved from prototype to the the field yet, or is that something that's still being kind of in, in that initial phase? Now, we completed that prototype, and I believe uh, we have just transitioned that. That's a great example of how the DIU actually should work, right? You, you see a need, you fill the need, you test it out, then boom, it's, it's ready to go. Uh, maybe just a, one or two other examples of where that worked. I know uh, I talked to some of your folks around cybersecurity and the, the cloud-based security that, that you guys have, have tested out, and then you're moving that from prototype to field as well. Are, are there other examples that come to mind? You're talking about uh, secure cloud management, uh, which we are working to prototype that and uh, move on. Yeah, a couple other uh, fantastic examples. Um, I'll use. Uh, we're looking at a uh, like a, a tactical 5G network. We are prototyping this with the California Air National Guard right now, where we're able to rapidly set up a secure 5G. Uh, meshed network for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, uh, first responders. Uh, so if you think forest fires, now we're able to set up a very rapidly a 5G network for cellular coverage for those folks that's d- discreet and secure for them to uh, continue executing their uh, activities that they uh, need to do. Predictive maintenance, I'll hit this one real quick. We've talked about it before, but we're using AI for predictive maintenance. And of course, the commercial sector has solved this a long time ago in industry, not just the airline industry, but other industries that use very, very expensive machines with a lot of moving parts and failure of any of those parts uh, would result in a catastrophic outcome. We talked about the airlines, but also resource extraction, the oil industry, uh, et cetera. They perfected this. And what we've been able to do is apply predictive maintenance using AI uh, to multiple platforms across the Air Force. And we've seen an increase in mission capable rates and a decrease in unscheduled maintenance time and uh, looking to continue scaling that one across other platforms. Another one is our uh, drones. Would be uh, There's would-be adversarial uh, domination of the global drone market uh, that represents uh, some risks. And so we've had several prototypes with the Army uh, that resulted in cybersecure drones, and we were able to field those in less than 48 hours in response to the uh, humanitarian uh, refugee situation in uh, Germany when the uh, U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. We're able to deploy those very, very rapidly. Thank you for those examples. I think it's important, again, to highlight that this is not just pie in the sky slash, oh, well, bleeding edge will hopefully find a use for it. There's actually uses for it. It's, they are being used uh, outside of, of the lab, so to speak. Mike, Actually, that's, that's a great point. 
on, if I can, if I can pull on that thread for a second, that is one of our critical metrics. And we don't, we don't want to just gather metrics of awarding contracts and whatnot. Really, the end state for us is a transition. And about three years ago, we did an internal evaluation on our transition process, and we've made a couple changes. I've talked about our defense engagement team and our commercial engagement team. We stood up each of those to help with the transition process. And even working with our DOD partner, before we take on a project, we talk about the end state in mind. So before we even take on a prototype, uh, we have conversations with our DOD partner on what the plan is to transition that technology once it's uh, successfully completed into either a production OT, uh, put it on the GSA schedule for others to purchase, or into a program of record. So it, it's very important to note that uh, that transition is our, our critical metric. That's why we're here is to get the technology to to the forces in the field. And I think that's also why the value that you talked about earlier on, that folks are seeing it as they you get more interest, more solicitations, more requests for your help. I think they're seeing, oh, okay, they're not just playing with the new shiny object. And I think that's that's uh, can't be underestimated, that value. Mike, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit in DOD. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit inside the Department of Defense. You, you talked about the growth as well in the number of people who are taking part and I want to touch base on something that's maybe new or new to the audience, which is the National Security Innovation Capital effort. That was launched, I think, uh, February 2021. So we're about a year later. Just give us an update. What is it and, and, and what kind of progress are you making with that program? National Security Innovation Capital, as you mentioned, it was authorized in the 19 NDAA, and it was not appropriated until the uh, this last year, this uh, 21 NDAA. And the intent there is as we looked across where the investment was taking place and what technologies were being developed, we recognized that the hardware uh, technology, uh, hardware technology was underinvested in. American, about 90% of American venture capital uh, was going to software for a lot of the obvious reasons, uh, that being shorter return on investment, larger return on investment. And so some early stage tech companies, hardware companies, were in such need of capital that they would accept offshore capital and resource constraint to fully determine the geographic origins of that. So that was a lot of the motivation behind National Security Innovation Capital uh, and appropriated in February of 21. And we received about 100 submissions for that. And we wound up funding approximately nine companies. Uh, and the, the uh, funding range was uh, uh, half a million up to $3 million. And it was ranging from first engineering design to production process prototype on those hardware companies. And primarily in the areas of autonomy, communications, power, sensors, and space. And these companies aren't located in the traditional hubs. They're, they're across the country. And one other benefit of national security innovation capital is that it blocks adversarial capital from entering into some of these companies. So we can continue to work with the companies to develop that hardware technology. And then when it reaches a stage of uh, maturation, it's available for the department to solve uh, some of the DOD problems. Is there kind of the long term, okay, we made this investment, we hope to see something in a year, five years, do you have some of those metrics around, okay, when we hope to start seeing some of the, the money being uh, turned from 
investment to product? Well, it's uh, it's very early to determine, you know, what that timeline looks like. You know, we've only been uh, appropriated for about a year there and we've invested in nine folks or nine companies. But if you think about uh, NSIC and then Core DIU, Core DIU being that process we talked about moments ago, think about those as, as separate but very, very complementary pathways to the defense marketplace. Uh, it could be a linear path where product and technology comes out of ANSIC and then it goes right into a competitive process with DIU. But it's certainly not limited to that. There are other pathways from there bridging that valley of death and working with other entities in DOD to, as another pathway to bring that technology in. You had investment for the first time in 2021. Do you have investment in 2022? How does that process work? Is that something you waited on from Congress, like a lot of agencies with the yes. CR? Yep, exactly. Um, we're, we're, we're anxiously waiting to see what the appropriation is. But clearly, when we received 100 submissions for our first tranche, there's no shortage of interest in companies that want to work with uh, the department. So we anticipate um, that we'll probably have the same response once we do get, get our appropriation. All right. You and everybody else are waiting. And I'm sure at the same time as some of the, your DOD partners get their appropriations, they will be coming. They have that 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 piece of uh, paper in hand and ready to go. Are you expecting it to be a, a fairly busy 2022 looking forward? We uh, absolutely are expecting it to be a busy 22 for uh, some of the reasons that, that you uh, certainly mentioned. But really, even more than that, as we, as we look to 2022, uh, you know, what are we going to what are we going to start doing? We're going to continue doing what we do, where our really aptitude lies, and that is to accelerate that commercial technology uh, into uh, DOD and get it uh, to the men and women in uniform as quickly as we can. Uh, but we're also going to look at how we can continue to improve. Like, look, 60 years ago, when the current budgeting and procurement process really was developed, DOD was leading the development of most technologies. In fact, in the 60s, uh, about 40% of global R&D was U.S. DOD related. Um, now that number is about 3%. So if you think back then, DOD was considered a first mover, making the initial investments. Now, uh, we talked about the magnitude of investment in the commercial sector. DOD needs to perfect being a fast follower. And how does one do that? Uh, how, does, how does one become a fast follower to leverage that robust uh, commercial technology? And there's a handful of things that we really have to rethink and recalibrate on, on how we do. One is we've got to reform the uh, requirements process, you know, where commercial technology really changes the need for that time-consuming uh, requirements process for detailed specifications and rather just looking at what are we going to solve. We need to find the organizational home for these new technologies. UAS is a great example. Counter UAS is a, a great example. You know, what are the programmatic and organizational homes for these technologies uh, that we need to pull in? Uh, another one is the commercial acquisition process. Uh, we have to figure out how we can establish a complementary acquisition process that maximizes competition, as I mentioned, but also operates at commercial speeds and cycles where we're able to leverage that uh, 12 to 18 month generation of technology uh, and get that into the department. And of course, DIU, we've refined that process and we're, we're just looking at ways of scaling that methodology in addition to our uh, technologies. Uh, and then the last one is uh, no surprise to anyone is uh, sustained budget and budget predictability for this. So we just have to have that, that predictable budget to match those commercial speeds because those certainly are very closely linked. 
But we also need to, you know, kind of underpinning all of this, we need to recognize and reimagine our military capability as an ever-evolving uh, collective. You know, it's not a static inventory of weapons in development or sustainment. And leverage key classes of emerging technologies to field alternative concepts and capabilities that will complement our existing exquisite platforms. And again, do this with the commercial speeds and cycles uh, that we have. You know, if you think about some of our exquisite platforms, uh, there's inevitable vulnerabilities there. And we need to be able to uh, deploy some of this technology to to help minimize uh, those risks as much as we can. I want to go back to something you said as, as around the commercial acquisition process. One of the things that we've heard over the last 30 years in the, in the federal acquisition sector more broadly is we got to build buy commercially. We have to get to the point where, as you said, we're, we're not always behind the cycle, or at least we're not so far behind the cycle. Yet at the same time, you have challenges like uh, the new requirements that are coming in that are layering on top of the commercial uh, marketplace, like whether it's sustainability, which you know it's hard to argue against, but it's another piece that layers on top. Or now we're seeing, obviously, the importance around uh, equity and inclusion of, of small and disadvantaged businesses. How does that kind of add more complexity to what you all are trying to do? Because you have similar goals put out by the White House, by DOD, but yet you still need to act in, in a more accelerated way. The system adds that complexity. And you have a fantastic point that if and we'll, we'll use it as a generic widget. By the time we go through the requirements process to procure a widget, and by the time we actually field it, it's two to four to five years later. And that widget, compared to commercial standards, is now two and a half generations old. So then that drives a sustainability problem, because now you have a, a sustainment tail on an outdated widget from the commercial sector uh, perspective. So now they have to develop a very defense-exquisite sustainment tail for that because the commercial sector has has already moved uh, on like that. So again, it's you're, you're right. There's a, there's statutory requirements to consider commercial first, but the department is not optimized to do that. And that's where it's a, a relook at the the three legs of the procurement system: the acquisition uh, piece, with the requirements piece we talked about in the budgeting, which we hit on briefly. Uh, there's been a lot of energy around acquisition reform uh, lately. We're just now starting to see energy applied to the budgeting process. I think the uh, 22 NDAA came out with a task force or a commission to evaluate the uh, the planning, programming, budget execution system that the department uses. So we're starting to see some energy there. And then the last one is the requirements. Um, we're eventually going to have to get some, some energy around evaluating uh, reformation of the requirements process and what that would look like for those exquisite platforms that are always going to need a very arduous requirements process. And then those other commercial things that we can uh, maybe consider alternative uh, acquisition paths for. There is a lot of excitement, I can tell you, in industry and within, I think, DOD for that uh, budgeting process reform effort. The the hope is that not only do they come out with a good report, but people actually listen. But that's outside of your pay grade. I know that for sure. Mike, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit in DOD. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit inside the Department of Defense. Mike, I want to also touch upon the other area that, that you're focused in on, on in 2022 that you have control over, which is the reform requirements process, right? The 
time-consuming detail specifications. What DIU has been doing over the last you know five, six years is showing that that process can work. Asking about, okay, what is the outcome we're trying to get to? Not how we're gonna to get to that outcome, but in the end, I need my widget to do X. Tell me how it's gonna work. Is that starting to, if you will, I'll use the term bleed into DOD more broadly, or is this still confined in, into your small but mighty world? I think it's still uh, confined in our world. And I think that's the case because those other two legs of the procurement process, the acquisition piece of it and the budget piece of it, are much easier to see where the breakdown is and where the, the added time is. I think the requirements part of it is just now starting to emerge as an area that's going to require uh, some attention to that. But uh, again, not only are we looking to prototype technology, but also methodology. So our approach of uh, using problem statements based on services requirements to really get at, at you know, simply state the problem, uh, we're looking to uh, also be the ink plot that spreads uh, on that as well. One of the things that's important, I think, uh, is for you all to share what you do day in and day out. So you knew, you knew my next question that was coming is, how are you uh, sharing your good work? How are you sharing your successes beyond, of course, talking to folks like myself? Well, talking to uh, folks like yourself is one of our favorite things to do. Uh, but what we're doing is we're, we're out out in the system. And again, um, we're starting to see the fruits of our labor just in the numbers we talked about, I think, in the opening question of our commercial partners and, and DOD partners. But we're, we're diving down to the next uh, level. In fact, we're going to announce a program uh, that we are initiating in partnership with the Defense Acquisition University to educate and provide experience on how to effectively leverage and transition commercial technology. Uh, so it goes, you know, that pulls in a little bit of our OT discussion there. So pulling in some of the contracting professionals, uh, pulling in uh, operators and pulling in folks across different career fields so they fully understand the way to do this and give them experience in that. In fact, oh, that's one of the things that makes DIU special is our mandate to work across the joint force. And DIU is made up of uh, commercial executives who have spent a career in Silicon Valley. It's made up of career government employees. It's made up of service members from all the services and all the components. So that's active duty, uh, guard, uh, reserve. Uh, we have Coast Guard folks working in DIU. We have some detailees from uh, DHS, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency that are working with us. So it, it truly is a very diverse workforce with different perspectives uh, that then come and spend time with us and then go back to their home, home organization and, and take that knowledge and expertise with them back there and, and help us to uh, to spread the word on that. And uh, where can folks find more information about that training session, that opportunity? Is it is it is it going to take place in person, by virtual? Any other details? Uh, you bet. And uh, this and much more information on our website, uh, diu.mil. We have our uh, annual report posted there. That's where we post our solicitations, uh, where we post our frequently asked questions. Um, so it is a, a great wealth of information on our website. We discussed a lot of your 2022 priorities. There's a, a shift as well that you didn't mention about more regional focus. Maybe talk a little bit about what that's going to look like and, and how DIU is maybe trying to reach out to different parts of the country where maybe certain types of technologies are, are growing or at least happening. You know, like I said, our primary goal is going to be accelerate that commercial technology, and it's related to that regional structure. And while, you know, we certainly strive on competition, I talked about the competition right down to our, our solicitation. We also excel at co uh, cooperation. 
And in this era of the broader strategic competition, it demands uh, collective cooperation. So we are shifting to a regional focus to align government innovation entities within those geographic uh, regions uh, to make sure we're getting the best technology from across the country, not just the technology hubs, uh, the best technology that the U.S. has to offer. But also it, it demystifies the complex procurement process. Uh, if we can get all the government innovation folks uh, together and rowing in the same direction uh, and engaging with our commercial partners uh, in one voice, then it's going to de- help us uh, demystify that. And then if you, you think and kind of expand that out a little bit, we also want to find ways uh, to work more closely with our partners and allies, um, leveraging the commercial technology with allied ecosystems uh, to more closely integrate into a, a combined force when we do need to uh, come together from a, an allied front. If we can solve that interoperability uh, earlier, uh, that's a win-win all the way around. Um, we're working with our combatant commands uh, more closely on this on the front lines of uh, tomorrow's conflicts. And really, if you think about it, uh, the emerging technology is global uh, and technology connects us in many ways. Uh, working with our partners and allies uh, to leverage that dual-use technology is another way just to tighten those bonds uh, with our partners and allies. The regional hub idea, is it going to, do you have uh, places where you will be or you are going to be or already are? I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I think San Antonio maybe one, Boston, get, uh, fill in, fill my blanks. We talked about the, the uh, technology-focused organization of DIU. Geographically, we are headquartered in Silicon Valley in uh, Mountain View, California, We have an office in Austin, Boston, and D.C., and as of April, we will have a presence in Chicago to represent the Midwest uh, region. And again, it's a broad outreach strategy to align all the government innovation uh, efforts in that region. I knew that Austin, San Antonio, it all kind of falls together for me in that big place called Texas, right? Uh, Right. The other pieces that you kind of touched upon is the near-peer competition, and that plays into everything I think DOD does. I've been told there's a new defense strategy coming out fairly soon. But either way, can, can you talk about how some of the work you're doing kind of tries to support that idea of, okay, how do we keep up with China and Russia and others across the world? Right. Well, China has a program called CivMil Fusion, where civilian and commercial technology is immediately made available to their military. Uh, and it's overseen by the president. We don't have that, and we don't want that. We want our open system. It's what it's what has allowed us to excel and lead in the uh, the technology area. But it takes large muscle movements to work with the government. Let's face it. And so that again was why uh, DIU was created was to to do that, and also why NSIP was there is to not necessarily be a specific counter to CivMil uh, fusion, but at least to illuminate multiple paths and demystify some of the complexity around working with the government to again get that, uh, that leading edge technology into DOD. And as you look at solicitations, as you look at partner requests from different Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and, and DOD agencies, does the near-peer competition play into some decision-making? Or that's, that's a piece of it, but really what's driven is, is the, the broader impact it can have on, okay, is, does this impact one person or a thousand people? that type of decision-making? Yeah, really, it's looking at the broader impact uh, that we're trying to bring to bear. And and I'll come back and use the example of our drone uh, capability. That project started as a short-range reconnaissance project with the Army, and it wasn't long before we realized the prototyping process that uh, there were adversarial actors that were dominating uh, that capability. So 
what we did is we expanded that out a little bit and we prototyped multiple domestic or allied producers of drones that uh, were able to produce a, a cyber secure, cyber hardened uh, drone capability that we could put out to our uh, customers in uh, the army. Uh, but then we thought, well, why not expand this out? There are more other requirements we can meet. There are other problems we can solve with folks with a, with a similar mission set. So looking at uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Customs and Border Patrol have a very similar drone requirement as uh, DOD, uh, FAA, uh, State Department. And so what we did is we opened that up. We put that drone uh production onto the GSA schedule so that all of those entities across the executive branch now, uh, we can aggregate that economic buying power uh, to solve their problems and build a domestic uh, capability in this near-peer environment that we find ourselves. The simple thing of a secure drone, we think, well, why do they need to be secure? Well, (laughs) we can learn very quickly that if you hack into a drone and make it crash, make it turn around or or do whatever, that, that becomes a bigger threat than people, I think, initially thought. So, I think it's important to to not only view it that way, but then partner with, as you said, the folks like at DHS and CBP and others. Uh, Mike, you've been very generous with your time. And, and, and before I let you go, uh, we talked a lot about non-traditional companies in the front end of the conversation. We talked a lot about companies in general. So, so what's your message to them? What, what should they take from this report that, that we've been talking about beyond the fact of we're open for business, come, come submit your solicitation? But what, what's, the, what's the, maybe the, the, the message beneath the, the, the lines? Well, the method beneath lines is um, we want to work with you. Um, you know, help us. Uh, we're laser focused on speed. We're laser focused on uh, becoming a sophisticated partner for our commercial partners and delivering uh, impactful solutions to the department at the speed of relevance and the speed of technology. We want to continue lowering those barriers to entry to the defense marketplace. We, we talked about the time and the money, but, you know, we also want to consider the next, what are the next generation of barriers to the defense marketplace that are going to pop up? And, and we can only fully understand those by continuing to engage in, in those conversations with our, our commercial uh, partners. And we want to scale this technology. We don't just want to do prototypes. We want to scale. We want to, like I said, be a sophisticated partner to our, our folks in the commercial ecosystem. And I imagine the other piece of this is don't be scared off by 43 proposals, 75% small business. I mean, those are all actually good numbers because it's not like you're a one and done organization. A lot of times prototypes have multiple awards, at least that maybe in the first round. Uh, that's right. Uh, that's right. Don't uh, exactly. Don't be afraid of that. And, um, you know, we move fast, so we'll go through it. And if, if the answer is yes, we continue on. If it's no, uh, then we'll have more uh, requests for proposals that are coming up. And we want to be respectful of the time. And if it's not a good fit, then it doesn't mean that it's not going to be a, a better fit in the future. Mike, you've been very generous today, and I've very much enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot, and uh, I know we'll catch up with you and your folks uh, throughout the year. But for now, I will say thank you very much to my guest, Mike Madsen, the Deputy Director of the Defense Innovation Unit in the Defense Department. Mike, thanks as always for your time. Thank you, Jason. I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to talking again. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.